0: If you're not getting any opposition and you're not getting any friction, then you're not really doing anything in life. And so I'm okay with friction, right? Like friction is pretty fundamental to even how like cars move forward, right? Like without friction, our cars wouldn't even drive. So I don't necessarily look for it, but you know, I I embrace it when it's there and I I don't look at it as a, a, a detractor. I think anything worth doing is pretty hard. So it didn't really deter me.
1: You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode Value Your Critics. My guest today is a serial founder who says he feels like he's lived 200 years. The fact is, he just turned 40 but he has lived several lives in that he's created and sold 5 different companies that's 5 times spinning an idea into reality hiring growing and shepherding the thing he built into someone else's hands it's a lot but ben lam isn't slowing down in fact he's on to his most audacious project yet a total moonshot before he'd even left his last company, he got interested in synthetic biology and met the Harvard geneticist whose lab works on gene editing CRISPR technology, who has worked on the human transplant pig organs, and whose lab is working to edit elephant genes to recreate the 4,000 years extinct woolly mammoth. Yes, Ben Lam's new company, Colossal Bioscience, is aiming to repopulate the Earth's Arctic tundra— with thousands of woolly mammoth-like creatures. Of course, they have yet to make one, and it's a huge feat scientifically. And it's ethically complicated. I spoke to Ben about all of this and his path to infusing a Harvard genetics project with a ton of venture capital funding, hoping to speed up the path to de-extinction. And you'll be shocked to hear the timeline they are looking forward to do it at. But before Ben was working on something that sounds like it's out of a Michael Crichton novel, he was getting fired from every high school gig he ever had.
0: I guess how I got here was, uh, you know, I probably had like eight jobs my senior year of high school, and I got fired, I think, from all of them. (laughs) So my choices were either try to figure out entrepreneurship or be homeless or just live with my parents forever, right? Um, I studied finance and accounting uh, just because I knew a lot about software and technology, at, at least I thought I did at 18 years of age. And what was interesting was uh, I, I started getting really fascinated with how technologies could solve different problems. And I met an incredible professor, Dr. James Moshinsky, who had an e-learning company, and I didn't know anything about e-learning. And you know, his view was we can leverage technology to train people online so that you can do distributed workforce. And he was one of the um, you know top. Uh, key uh, uh, instructional designers of the world. He developed some of the biggest learning models for some of the largest learning management systems out there. Yeah, and so I started doing consulting for him just to kind of date myself. This was in the days of like Macromedia Flash or Adobe Flash.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> My thesis was like, it doesn't have to be black text on a, a white screen. Why can it be an immersive experience? Why can we create emotional connection to the content? And so like our whole thesis on why I started the company when I was a senior in college was like, why can't e-learning be sexy? Why can't it be fun? Like if you're going to talk about like the issues with, you know, uh, an OSHA course of like dumping industrial waste waters in the drain and you're doing it for a biotech in Northern California, like why can't we take beautiful pictures of like Marin? And so like we, we build this like entire kind of like connection to the content. And so what was interesting is that that company grew pretty fast. And um, I ended up, stopped working for him, started a company, and he became my chief learning officer at that company. So I was, uh, I guess I was 21, 22 when I started it. And um, I went out for an internship at Genentech. It, it was a great learning experience of how to start to build a business. And you know, I was fortunate enough to have one of the uh, leading biotech companies in the world as my first client. So it helped uh, you know, grow that company.
1: That's amazing. So I just have to first say that you've had a full career, like a very diverse and long career before founding Colossal. You've sold five companies, Your resume um, is so kind of vast and far-reaching that it sounds kind of made up. Like, you've worked in promoting space exploration, enterprise AI, a customer-facing bot platform, um, a game design company. Like, I can't ask you to be succinct here, but could you give me sort of a summary of your career? Like, how do you talk about your career prior to Colossal? I
0: like to learn. Like, that's my thing is I'm very, very curious. I like to learn new things. Obviously, before Colossal, I wasn't in synthetic biology, uh, but I'm really, really just passionate about learning, and I'm really, really curious. The way the way you framed it is is accurate. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm like 200 years old, um, but I'm not. I uh, just turned 40. Maybe that 200 is the new 40. Hopefully, one day. But what's interesting about my career is that I've always just found new, interesting sectors that I'm passionate about, and then I've been very fortunate to work with people that on are much smarter than me and co-found companies that are uh, with people that are much smarter than me. And so several of those people are co-founders with me at Glossal that also were at, you know, previous companies with me uh, as well. But ultimately, I've just been fortunate about, you know, finding really interesting market opportunities, how we can leverage technology for those market opportunities. Ultimately, uh, partnering and employing people that are much smarter than me that are subject matter experts, right? Like before... My last company, I didn't know anything about satellites or defense. I'd never been in the sector, but you know, there were really smart people that have spent their whole career in that. So, just supporting much smarter people than me in these sectors has really just led to you know us building incredible companies over the years.
1: Yeah. So, so is it, you said one of your strengths is kind of spotting that market opening that the hole that needs to be filled. I imagine you're also good at talking to investors, speaking to the press and that sort of thing. Am I right there? Like what are the strengths that you bring to each company?
0: I think it's my job to kind of, you know, define the vision, bring the team together, support that team, and then you know, kind of help define like whatever our North Star is and like and hopefully I try to support in, you know, building the kind of like cultural zeitgeist of the organization through our branded messaging through our internal operating procedures, um, and then just really want to bring on the best talent. And so, you know, I think that I've, I've, I've learned how to talk to, um, investors. I've learned how to talk to employees. I've learned how to talk to press every company that I've been in has been a slightly, it's all, they're all technology companies, but they've all been slightly different, um, market sectors. Right. And so it's never the exact same investor set always, or it's never the exact same employee type, you know, like colossal we we have a lot of insanely brilliant women and men scientists and i had never worked with some of these scientists and you know i always worked with like engineering personalities but then separately now learning how to also interact and support you know this entire new group of people being incredibly well known phd's uh, and incredibly nuanced scientists that have worked on like one thing for you know maybe you know 10 or 20 or even 30 years it's just a new thing. And so I think it goes back to that constant kind of curiosity and learning. Just want to continue to learn how to, you know, work with these people because it continually changes with every company.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I imagine a lot of them were academics where, you know, you said working on the same research project for a decade. are They're probably not really used to being managed. Is that the case?
0: No, I mean, they're they're incredible. I mean, they, they're they self-managing. But, you know, academia is different. You know, it works on different timelines than what we do at companies. So it definitely works on different timelines. In addition to it working on different timelines, you know, there's in academia, sometimes it's competitive, right? It's a very competitive environment to you know, get the next published paper or the next breakthrough in, in a company. You want to be collaborative. You want to be cross-functional. And so, um, yeah, so there's always a transition when you're going from one to the other. But our team is just at Colossal just been really open uh, to bringing their expertise, you know, from their various fields, as well as, you know, what are, you know, we're, we look at the mammoth and other species you can't take the software out of myself and some of my partners right and so so we look at you know designing systems around you know uh around software design practices and we ask questions like well, what could be automated where could we build in a 24 7 work cycle you know do we need to put scientists on the other side of the world and so these are the types of questions that i think sometimes (laughs) scare phds but it's interesting (laughs) we've we've been very very fortunate because our team is so excited about what we're working on that everyone is compromising and finding the right flow, uh, which has been great.
1: Um, you've sold five companies, um, which is something we don't talk about often on this podcast, but maybe you could take us through one of the exits and give any advice for other founders who you know might see that in their future, um, how to make it go smoothly.
0: It's definitely like a roller coaster, you know, that's on fire with like glass in the seat. Right? <laughs> sounds a, fun. <laughs> yeah, that's it why it's like, it's like building companies. I, I I recently I did some interview recently where I was very honest and open about like the entrepreneurial journey being moderately painful and not necessarily wishing it on a lot of people. What's interesting is I got a lot of great feedback from entrepreneurs and business owners, people that have gone through that journey, because a lot of times it is overly glorified. The same thing with exits, right? Because at, at the end of the day, you've got um, companies are kind of just like big organisms, right? It's There's like a bunch of cells as the humans that kind of work together to, to form a function. Companies are just people, right? Sometimes people cast on them their own Entity, but at the end of the day, they're just a bunch of different humans, right? With their own personal agendas, their own personal ideas, and and whatnot. And so, company exits, at least in my experience, are never easy. They're painful. You know, sometimes they're emotional, right? Because you know, like you know, my I remember one of my first companies that uh, uh, got acquired. Uh, it was my second company, Chaotic Moon. It was a it was a really kind of emotional time because I was younger. I had a, you know, a really incredible team, a really, really incredible culture, had a very, you know, had one of the largest companies in the world buying it, had a very different culture. I knew that it wasn't a fit for me to stay. And, you know, you'd brought all these people in and it's not just those people, but it's also their families. It's, you have kind of this halo effect of people that you affect when you, when you are um, a steward, when you're the CEO of a company and you're being kind of like, you have this like steward of responsibility across not just them, but also your decisions affect them and the lives of their families, right? And so you don't even know, like maybe there's someone that's taking care of a, an elderly parent or a sick child. And so you have to be thoughtful that when you go through an exit, how's it gonna affect them? And so so I think that exits are always pretty painful and they're never straightforward. There's always kind of changes in the last moment. Um, the biggest advice I can have is that no exit is ever done until it's done. I've had exits that you know have blown up seven days before they were supposed to close. And so a lot of times people get really emotionally attached to the exit and you just have to um, really kind of be as in as you can about it through the process. And, you know, if it makes sense, then it'll happen. If it's supposed to happen, the universe will help it happen. Uh, If it's not supposed to happen, then um, you'll find a better path, and and I'm I'm a big big believer in that, and and I've seen that time and time again.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, and I think that's kind of good advice for a wide range of deals. You know, it's it's not it hasn't happened till it happens, right?
0: There were moments in time where you know you're you're crushed when you're really excited about a strategic partner or whatnot, and it didn't happen or or whatever. Um, and so it's easy, you know, to say it, you know, in hindsight. So I'm sure people that are have gone through it or are, are in the process of going through it or about to go through it, um, may not think it sounds as, as nice as I've said it, but it does, you know, but, but the, the pain does, does wear off, but all, all exits are, are hard because there's some form of a dysfunctional marriage that's, that's happening with different people and different cultures. And you just got to kind of trust the process and try not to take it as personal as you can.
1: Speaking of, as you just said, the universe will make it happen. I want to talk about Colossal, um, your new company. How did you meet um, Harvard geneticist George Church?
0: Yeah, I just, um, uh, my chief of staff, you know, I, I thought that, you know, coming from an AI and technology and software background, I really thought that I would build a synthetic biology company that has some automation, has software component to it. I'm very fascinated with synthetic biology. And so, you know, I thought that, my next company would potentially after hypergiant would be a synthetic biology company. And ultimately it is, I didn't know it was going to be this synthetic biology company. I didn't know it was going to be a de-extinction synthetic biology company, but I reached out to George because, you know, he's one of the fathers of synthetic biology. He and a handful of others have really kind of like defined the field and so I just reached out to him from a subject matter expert perspective just to try to learn more and understand. I really wanted to understand what he was doing in the lab and what projects he was seeing, what he was excited about. You know, the church lab has an incredible reputation of spinning out massively transformative companies uh, and incredible postdocs that changed the world. I love his culture and, and love a lot that I learned, uh, knew about George. But what was interesting is that when I talked to him on this first call, he was incredibly passionate about everything that he's working on. But his voice did change when he started talking about this. It was like, it was kind of like the Steve Jobs, like one more thing, right? It's like at the end of the call, towards the end of the call, he's like, well, there's also this other project that, you know, we've we've only gotten a small $100,000 donation from Peter Thiel on. And, And then he started talking about his mammoth restoration project. I was incredibly fascinated about it. That night, I pretty much didn't sleep. I just read all these articles. Like, why didn't I know that George was working on bringing back the mammoth? So I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into it called him the next day and reached out to Emma on his team uh, to see when we could come out to the lab. I went out to the lab uh, like two or three weeks later and then spent half a day with him uh, in the lab uh, learning more. We both missed a bunch of our other meetings, but it was, it was great because we just got incredibly passionate about the idea of de-extinction, how you can build a, a company that's like while you're working on bringing back the mammoth, how you can also build technologies that help human healthcare. how you can build technologies that help critically endangered species and species preservation and and so we really thought there was an opportunity to really build um an inspirational biology company that you know did a lot of good for the world and created a lot of value and it was kind of like the the it was like the you know convergence of like impact value creation and inspiration and then we just were like, yeah, we were both hooked. And so then I had to figure out, okay, I had to figure out a transition to new CEO at Hypergiant. I had to, you know, figure out how to. we had this <laughs> looming pandemic. We had a lot of other things kind of going on that kind of like uh, defined our our timeline. But now we're finally here.
1: So how quickly did it become a company and... It's such an interesting um, transition from this inside the research lab, inside academia to let's fuel this thing with some venture capital and make it go faster, right? I guess I'd love to hear just a little bit more about that process. And did it take long to convince anyone that this was <laughs> the way to go?
0: The timeline is, so George and I went back and forth all through the pandemic. So so we met before the, the pandemic and going back to kind of that universal fate uh, perspective, the day I flew back, this is like, uh, you can make this stuff up. It's like, it's incredible. Like the, the day I flew back, I got home, I got a call from Brian or someone saying, you've got to turn on 60 minutes, turned on 60 minutes. And there's George church on 60. Like I was just with it, like George church on it. And then he was actually talking about the mammoth as one of his projects, right? 60 minutes was, was really excited about it. And so I was pretty excited when I got back and then I just kind of, you know, solidify like, Oh, we have to go do this. So George and I spent, you know, a year and a half kind of like talking about it, planning it, what designing what the right business models were and whatnot. Obviously, we had the pandemic to deal with, which slowed everything down. All the big academic labs, people weren't in the labs. So therefore, none of this could be working. And once we saw kind of a path through this in May of 2021, uh, we decided to go uh, start the company. We started working with uh, my chief legal officer, started working with the Technology Transfer Office at Harvard, because we felt very strongly that we needed to get a lot of the core technology and have uh, access to it. We also wanted to keep some folks in the lab. We wanted to move people out of the lab, and it's been a really great, you know, collaboration with Harvard because you know we're funding research and postdocs in the lab. Uh, we also have three other labs outside of the, the Church Lab, and then some of our our head of biological sciences, uh, Ariana Huseli, uh, who came from the Church Lab. Actually, uh, her and Evan actually spend time in the church lab every week in in coordinating. So it's a really collaborative environment between academia and, uh, you know, Colossal on the commercial side. These things are, you know, it seems like a lot happens in Colossal every single week, but, you know, we've only been really collaborating with Harvard, you know, since uh, late last summer, probably like August of 2021. And then we announced the company in in September of 2021. Uh, And so what was interesting, though... Uh, about it is, is like, even in that short period of time, we've kind of found the right cadence between the folks that are working in academia, the people we've pulled out that are working on, on the commercial side. And, we, and we've really kind of built kind of the right system between cellular engineering, stem cell biology, embryology, we've kind of built various kind of functional groups that are kind of all working in parallel paths on, on different, um, you know, initiatives.
1: So how much funding have you raised so far? How many employees do you have total? Like, Bring me up to date on uh, the company's statistics.
0: Yes, yeah, so we have 70 employees. Uh, we raised $75 million in funding between a Series C and a Series A. And one of the questions you asked was about um, what the funding cycle was like. You know. Our seed round, we were only going to raise five to eight million in, in capital. We ended up raising a little over 16 million in the seed round. We were very selective. We were very thoughtful about who we went to. We we didn't want it to get out there. We were very, very thoughtful about the launch. But what was interesting is in the seed round, we really didn't have a business plan. The business plan was: hey, George and I are gonna build a synthetic biology company that's gonna bring back mammoths and help create thoughtful, disruptive conservation technologies, and we think we can do some stuff for humans. Like, that was the pitch.
1: So, like, I mean, the mammoths aren't going to make any money, so the and stuff for humans would ostensibly be your business plan.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I think about the, the business plan, and I think there's lots to, of models of this, and we're still learning and unpacking, right? So there's there's an entire model around consumer experiences, right? Like, there's an educational component to it. It's like um, two of our investors, one, Thomas Toll, who's our largest investor, And he's been one of our biggest spearheading forces for us. If you don't know Thomas, at some point, you should totally meet Thomas. Thomas is great. Thomas uh, was the founder of Legendary Pictures. and He started many other technology companies. He's also passionate about defense and other sectors as well. So he and I kind of like jived pretty early. And so he's got an incredible entertainment background. In addition to that, we've got folks like Animoca, right, out of Hong Kong, which is one of the top blockchain gaming companies. So we've been very, very thoughtful about bringing together, you know, impact investors consumer investors and then traditional venture capitalist investors and so on the business side you know there's an entire consumer experience side to this right there's movies tv shows games books there's educational content right like one of the things that we feel very passionate about is radical transparency so we could have done this all in a lab and like kept it secret right because we have the right financing to do that but we we've been very vocal about it because. We want everyone from the general consumer to in um, the general public to you know government officials to you know indigenous people groups for long term rewilding. We want everyone to be involved in what we're doing. We really look at this almost as a movement, not just a company. And so, so with this, um, we're very, very thoughtful on, on kind of like who, who we curated. And so, the business model really helps us get to the consumer experience side of getting to mammoths and other species. We think that's a pretty big business. We also think that some of the technologies and software, wetware, what actually happens in the lab, like different enzymes and different delivery mechanisms and editing tools, as well as hardware like Exodev or artificial wombs, we think those are all massive transformative businesses individually could all be you know billions upon billions of return you know, for our investors. And so that's how we've kind of framed it with our investors. And, and, and so if you look at kind of the consumer side of the business, and then you look at the technology side of the business, both are interesting and very viable. And people have bought into it and people are pretty excited about it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So just like big picture, this is an insanely complicated kind of moonshot project that you've embarked on. Uh, do you have like a timeline? Do you have goalposts to meet?
0: Yeah, we do. We The project management and timeline is not just get a bunch of scientists and cross your fingers and see what happens, right? Like, I feel, I feel <laughs> like that some of academia is general timelines. No, we're, we're, we're pretty thoughtful, right? Cause we come, as I mentioned, you know, we're software folks. And so we, we think of things like how you deliver and ship products, right? It's like, it's all about shipping products and, and the mammoth is a product on some level, right? So you have to think like
1: that. So when do you ship the mammoth
0: products? <laughs> so it's a great, it's a great question. Too. <laughs> our, so, you know, our goal is, uh, four to six years. And the reason why we say that is elephants have a 22 month gestation period. So, um, and we're not, currently focusing on changing reproductive biology and speeding that up at this time. Uh, And so so right now, we're only focusing on, you know, living with what the constraints of, of current gestational biology gives us and development biology gives us. So with that, that gives us essentially two years of genome editing and getting to viable embryos two years of gestation and two years of troubleshooting right and so that that two years of troubleshooting will kind of be mixed with the process but like any large technology moonshot you know timelines are subject to change um but we feel very very confident in that timeline uh we've already cultured cells we already have mammoth genomes we have a we're about to release the uh, a lot of the genomes that we're creating also for reference genomes to do genetic rescue for other species. Like the Asian elephant, we're releasing all of that data to the public, to conservationists, to other scientists. And so we're about to release uh, um, some of the work we've done on Asian elephants, which is just phenomenal with one of our incredible partners at the Vertebrate Genome Project. As we do that, I think people can start to understand the milestones of how you get to the mammoth. It's not like we do everything in secret, and then you know, in six years or four to six years, we have we have our first calves. I think that people will see kind of these major milestones around everything from the sequencing side to the editing side uh, to actual embryos, and then the gestational side, both through surrogacy and through um, artificial wombs. So I think that being committed to radical transparency will show a lot of that, you know, over time, which I think is important.
1: When we come back, I'll talk to Ben about. How precisely is company is planning on getting from elephant gene editing to a baby woolly mammoth? But first, a quick break. I want to talk to you more about that radical transparency because it is fascinating. But let's talk first about uh, just how you get to a mammoth. Um, You have mammoth DNA, you have elephant DNA, but no one's even ever harvested an egg from an elephant before, right? So you mentioned artificial wombs. Can you talk just a little, just walk me through the scientific process once you...
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to kind of unpack with what you said, but it's interesting. The overall simplified Version of the process is you have to look at one creating sequences both with the mammoth and the its closest phylogenetic relative being the Asian elephant. Now we are also doing work on African elephants, Borneo elephants, the forest elephant, which is kind of a subspecies. But we're so we're actively doing sequencing on that. We're also doing population genomics uh, work. So we're working with a lot of the existing mammoth uh, sequences that are out there. They're highly fragmented. We're also doing assemblies of our own. We also have access to 50 uh, non-published mammoth genomes, which are pretty interesting. From a data set perspective, there's three times more data than all of the other elephant and mammoth genomes combined worldwide, which is great. Um, We're also getting fresh tissue samples ourselves and doing our own uh, sequencing and Hi-C and other things. So getting to understand, uh, one, getting the sequence in place, and then two, starting to do the computational biology work to understand the differences between uh, the Asian elephant and the woolly mammoth, because the Asian elephant, it's about 99.6%, the same as the woolly mammoth genetically. Uh, it's its closest phylogenetic relative. But with that, there's still many, many, many differences. And so what, what's, what's changed? What, what, what hasn't? So going through that process, getting to kind of like what we think that the targeted edits have are George and his team prior to us in, uh, getting engaged have identified about 45 to 60 genes and edits that really kind of relate to cold tolerance. So that's everything from the things that we can see, the genotypes and, or the phenotypes that we can see, such as like the shaggy coat, small ears, dumb cranium, extra fat layers. Um, and then some things that we can see like the dumb cranium that kind of make it more icon and curved tusk. Two things on the molecular level, like how nerve endings are affected in extreme cold, and then um, how hemoglobin is produced and, and, and oxygen is transported throughout the body. Um, and it's, so they, they've done an incredible job before we got here um, and started Colossal on, on doing a lot of that work. And so we've been a lot doing a lot of work in the validation of, on that side uh, and, and, and getting some additional findings. And then you start designing the actual edits, so then you start actually designing the edited cells and getting to the point that you can start uh, creating functional assays to understand what's working, what's not. You test it molecular, you test it in in mouse models and model organisms. And then once you get to the point that you get comfortable that we've gotten to uh, all of the edits and we have a level of uh, acceptance and cell toxicity that we are feel comfortable with, then you can go down the process of somatic cell nuclear transfer. To your comment around egg extraction, you know, one of the things that we're very, very passionate about from a conservation perspective is being less intrusive to any species, you know, Um, and so we're working closely with a a couple of folks on our scientific advisory board, including Dr. Thomas Hildebrandt, who's one of the world's leading experts on egg extraction and has been leading a lot of the great work on the Northern White Rhino project, right? Which, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's it's incredible, but still, even to this day, there's two Northern White rhinos that exist. They're both female and uh, one of them, uh, Najin, aged out last year in October. Or they just felt like that she was too old to continue to do egg extraction, right? Even though that they've done egg extraction, they have viable embryos at this point. And so, another technology in addition to the egg extractions that we're working on, both internally through our animal husbandry group uh, led by Matt James here at, at Colossal, and working with Thomas Hildebrandt and a few others worldwide, we're also working on uh, gametogenesis and working on stem cell reprogramming. So this is technology that we pulled out using transcription factors out of Harvard's lab. And we're actually in the process of you know actually creating induced pluripotent stem cells for reprogramming. So our long-term goal is to not do any egg extraction. We want to do everything through the generation of gametes through this uh, stem cell reprogramming technology that we've licensed and we're constantly refining. And that's really, really important for conservation, right? Because if you start to look at not just the path to the mammoth, but really what we're assembling and look at it in a systems kind of theory model, we're really establishing, you know, a de-extinction toolkit that can not only be leveraged for things like mammoths, but it could also be leveraged for small populations. We don't talk about this publicly um, just because there's not a real need to, but we actually have a a rhino track in Colossal. So we're working on somatic cell nuclear transfer into rhinos. We're working on gametogenesis for rhinos because if we can also, you know, help further develop these technologies, not just for one species but for other species, we think that could be very, very helpful tools in conservation. Because if you can take this de-extinction technology stack of sequencing a species, creating cell lines, and preserving it, like the great work that's being done in the San Diego Zoo and, and, and others, if you can do that, and then you can look at, you know, using gametogenesis to get to the point that you can create embryos, and then if you, you if you can leverage that into uh, understanding population genomics, so that you can create enough diversity. So you don't have bottleneck. And then if you can get to, you know, ex utero development, that technology stack allows you to grow a hundred thousand Northern white rhinos in a lab and then work with incredible women and men on the ground for the rewilding purposes of reintroducing those species and and actually adapting them back to the wild. So, so we're very, very passionate about that process and systematizing that process, not just for de-extinction, but for species preservation. So, so that's the very high, level of the process.
1: Yeah, that's great. How far are you along on uh, the artificial womb and making that functional? I mean, it's just two years of, you know, development for the the potential fetus is wild, right?
0: It's a hard challenge. I I said that it's easier to grow other species and humans than elephants in, in an artificial womb. And so, but we do think these technologies... That we're developing also have massive applications for human healthcare, right? There's a lot of need for the different breakthroughs that, that I think that we'll achieve. So I don't know if our first calves will be grown in artificial womb. We're parallel pathing uh, the process, obviously with surrogacy. But in addition to that, on, on the artificial womb, we have a full exoDev team uh, internally that's that's working on it. We're focusing initially on uh, if you look at the different placental types out there, right? There's a handful of different placental types going back into not being a biologist and not being in synthetic biology before this, um, you know, I would have assumed everything just had kind of a circular placental sac that all mammals gestate in, right? And that's just not the case. Like, for example, marsupials, a lot of times uh, people think they don't even have a placenta. They actually do, but it's only for about 24 hours. And a lot of marsupials actually born premature, and so they don't even go through this last, stage of development in the in the Carnegie uh, scale and so what's interesting is the way that we're thinking about it kind of back to the system is we're looking at and we've done a lot of great literature review of, of what's happened out there on the early stages of development in, in the Carnegie scale like what's happened from you know getting to a embryo and blastula and kind of going through the process in ex vivo and then looking at how, uh, late stage work. So we've looked at work like Alan Flake's work and others. That, that's just incredible, right? And can be massively helpful for premature babies. can be very, very helpful for agriculture and other means. So looking at kind of the late stage work and then and then trying to start to look at the the differences in developmental biology in this kind of center state center section where you've got gas exchange in the lungs and you've got um, and you've got kind of the the umbilicus attachment to a placenta, right? And so it's, it's easier once you have a mammal that's got an umbilical cord that you could put into a medical device and do microsurgery. And that's really just about oxygen and nutrient and extra exchange. It's also easier when you have a species that like a marsupial or whatnot that doesn't necessarily need a placenta through the process. And it's also easier when you have a, um, you know, in the earlier stages of development. So bridging that is really kind of where the work is and so we're working on a couple of different tracks in the artificial womb, looking at some of the closest related animals to gestationally to elephants, including hyraxes and others. Um, while we're also going through the process of of working on uh, other species like marsupials and, and whatnot.
1: Yeah, that's so cool. So you think you could like clone a marsupial pretty easily?
0: Uh, I don't think any of this is easy. <laughs> I think there's, there's incredible work that's comparatively
1: easily, I guess. Yeah,
0: it's. I mean, look. A a 14 day gestation period versus a 22 month gestation period is is one that's a lot easier to understand and replicate, and so it's all about you know doing the taking the right steps to get our longer term projects right, and so um so working on a, a variety of species internally.
1: Yeah, great. Um, so there's like a ton of ethical questions uh, that I'm sure face you and your company. Um, all the time, um, how do you kind of respond to those? Um, you know, the the big scale questions like who should get to decide which animals you know live on our planet, and when and where.
0: Who should decide? You know, I'd, I'd argue who should decide that what animals shouldn't, right? Because a lot of people are making the decision for us of what animals should be taken from our planet, right? Like we've we've done a pretty good job of our, a human humanity's done a, a really good job of eradicating species. I, and I don't think there was a, a IUCN or Species Survival Commission uh, Council uh, deemed of like, oh, should we go ahead and eradicate this last of, the, of its kind? We just did it, right? We're, humans are unfortunately pretty good at being humans. But with that said, I do think we need to be thoughtful around what we bring back, right? And we need to, everything that, that we bring back needs to solve an ecological goal or have a positive impact, whether it's, you know, climate change or whether it's, filling a void in the system, very similar, you know, and and that isn't only limited to herbivores, right? Like obviously elephants and mammals are are herbivores. But, you know, if you look at like even the success of rewilding in um, Yellowstone, it's it's been very, very, very positive with wolves, which are, you know, a keystone predator in that ecosystem. But ethics is really, really key. And it's really, really important to us. And, And, you know, you can learn a lot more from people that are negative Uh, and questioning what you're working on than you can the the people that are just cheerleading you. Like, we love the people that are cheerleading us. They're great. And we're very grateful that the vast majority of the sentiment analysis that we've done shows that the vast majority of people are excited about what we're doing. But you learn more from people that are questioning you. And so we welcome that, right? Because that dialogue, uh, we don't run from it. We run towards it because that dialogue really helps us shape how we do things better. How do we improve things better? we're not going to do everything right. We're, we have a very big, very bold mission, something that's never been done before. And, you know, we need to take the public's opinion into account. And so some of the many things that I think that we've done right are we've engaged with conservationists and we have conservation partners. Like we have a, we haven't, uh, we, we don't market everything, but on our website, we have a whole page that's dedicated to elephant conservation that talks about EEHV and how we're Collaborating with folks on EEHV and how we're helping uh different elephant groups like International Elephant Foundation and, um, and Elephant Havens and what, and how we're we're supporting conservations both through technology and financially. Uh, in, in addition to that, you know, we've also brought on top conservationists to our SA Scientific Advisory Board and top bioethicists. So Alta Charo, who's our lead bioethicist, she's amazing. She's incredible. And I actually reached out to Alta and I love the story because I, I reached out to Alta because she had debated George on why we shouldn't do bring back animals, extinct like species like the specifically the mammoth, like three or four years before we started the company. And I was like, I want Alta because I want people that like have a voice that tell us what we shouldn't do or make us think about this, right? And so uh, she's, you know, talk about coming full circle. She's on our scientific advisory board, and she's one of our, um, uh, and she's our lead bioethicist, and she constantly helps us ensure that we're doing things the right way and thinking about this. Um, We brought on Beth Shapiro. Beth is our lead paleogeneticist, as well as uh, on our scientific advisory board. And she wrote a book that is about, it's called How to Clone a Mammoth, and it kind of ends with you know, spoiler alert, it kind of ends with you can't, right? But you can engineer one, right? And so she's talking about coming full circle, right? Like Beth is now kind of a part of the team. And so so, so we, we are a company that I think we have to pride ourselves on that radical transparency, on running towards people that are naysayers or that are negative on it and, and having that dialogue because you can learn so much more from those folks than you can... From people that are just telling you this is the greatest thing in the world, and and we just want to support you.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, Does it help uh, to have that conservation goal and angle as well? Um, You know, when speaking to people about it, and to what extent did that play into your decision?
0: If you're not getting any opposition and you're not getting any friction, then you're not really doing anything in life. And so I'm okay with friction, right? Like friction is pretty fundamental to even how like cars move forward, right? Like without friction, our cars wouldn't even drive. So I don't necessarily look for it, but embrace it when it's there. And I, I don't look at it as a detractor. I think anything worth doing is pretty hard. So it didn't really de- deter me. And, and it isn't just positioning with the conservationists. Like we really mean it. Like our, our head of animal operations, you know, we brought in, had worked with elephants for his almost his whole career, right? And so, we, we, you know, he's building out our entire uh, conservation strategy so we, we've been very very thoughtful on who we bring in internally who we partner with you know externally we've got some uh, additional really great conservation partners that we'll be announcing in the coming weeks and months it isn't just a, a positioning side and you know i'm sure it does help with people being positive or negative on on what we're doing but conservation is key to, to what we're developing because all of the technologies that we think that we will achieve long term aren't just helpful for human health or they are helpful for animals. Like, we, as I mentioned earlier, we are losing a fight. Like it is forecasted that we are going to lose up to 50% of all biodiversity between now and 2050. And so existing tools of conservation and um, existing methods of protecting the species, protecting the land in the cases of like the Northern white rhino, just guarding them with armed guards 24 seven, that just doesn't work. Like, even, like look at the Northern white rhino, two amazing creatures that are both female, no matter how much in love they are, they're not going to have a baby. They're just not, and so we have to intervene, or we are just delaying the inevitable of the extinction of the northern white rhinos, right? And so we have to intervene using humanity's best minds and using genetics and these in te- and technologies in and, and genetic rescue as a means of species preservation. Because if not, we, we will wipe out these species.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a case for bringing back the mammoth as well, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so everything that we're working on has a ecological impact. And so there's been great work done and peer-reviewed papers done by Nikita and Sergey Zimov, and, and as well as others in the Arctic Circle, but we've collaborated very very closely with them. And they've actually shown that the reintroduction of cold tolerant herbivores can lower the uh, ground surface temperature in the permafrost by anywhere from 2 to t- up to 10 degrees. In some cases and partially uh that is because of trampling the the snow uh and actually because when there's kind of this like light non-trampled uh like kind of just like passive kind of snowfall there's actually an insulation layer that occurs so you actually have both permafrost melting in the winter and and that cold winter winds actually can't pierce down to the floor so you have that as well as you know one of the reasons why they're very excited about mammoths is that elephants um and they've actually done peer review papers in Africa around areas where elephants are, the ground temperature is actually colder even in in, in the Sahara environment, which is just amazing. Not just because of the uh, migration patterns, but also how they affect the vegetation. They actually remove a lot of trees uh, that are typically carnivorous uh, in, the, in the case of the Arctic that are, are not sufficient uh, carbon sinks. And they actually get replaced with a, a faster nitrogen oxygen cycle of, of grasses uh, and they're actually much more efficient at carbon, kind of not only that cycle. There's also the albedo effect with of, of light reflection. So all the stuff they don't they don't absorb, they actually uh, reflect back into space. So therefore, it's not just getting stored in kind of like hot bark, uh, dark bark that gets permeated down to the root structure. And so it's really, really interesting the studies on what Arctic rewilding looks like. You know, it's 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 also not a small. You know, one of the feedbacks we got at launch was, well, this is going to take a long time. It's like, it is going to take a long time. It's also a natural solution, right? And so we need to be pursuing all means of species preservation and combating man-made climate change while we're also looking at kind of these longer-term systems um, like what we're proposing. But it's really, really interesting uh, to see not just the research in the permafrost in in, in northern Siberia and and the rest of the Arctic Circle, but it's also interesting to see kind of the studies that are coming out of Africa around how uh, powerful elephants are to being uh, environmental modifiers.
1: Maybe asking the dumb, obvious question, in in 10 years, can we go and see a mammoth-like elephant somewhere at a, at a theme park or something?
0: It, it's not a dumb question. I, we <laughs> talk about radical transparency. So we want the first calves for humanity to see, right? Because we think it's a, a feat of synthetic biology and, and it's a feat of humanity. So for us, we really um, so I hope it's so I hope it's sooner than ten years. Uh, we're gonna. I'm try imagining
1: to, like a whole flock, a herd of them, or you know. Uh, the. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> it
0: all. So I mean, we won't just have yeah. We're, elephants are very social animals, right? They have yeah uh, herd dynamics of you know eight to hundred. So our first kind of herd will probably be around ten, is what we're targeting mm-hmm. right now. And that 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 could change, but right now we're we're targeting around ten. But yeah, you will be able to see them. You know, our goal, as I mentioned, is Arctic rewilding. So, you know, long-term ecotourism in those locations, I think, are interesting for people. But then short-term, we'll have our own facilities as well as partner facilities where we hope people, the general public, can really see what we've achieved.
1: Fantastic. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Speaking with Ben, what has stuck with me beyond the obvious audacity of this company is just how many fascinating avenues of synthetic biology Colossal is working on simultaneously and the vast applications they could have outside of just repopulating the Arctic with big-footed herbivores. There's the White Rhino Project. There's placental fabrication and ex-utero development. There's gametogenesis through pluripotent stem cell reprogramming. It's, as he says, potentially, a de-extinction toolkit or a guide to species preservation in the future. There are also potentially massive implications for human healthcare. Ben is also extremely good at communicating all of this complicated science to everyone, taking a moonshot and bringing it down to earth. That too is truly impressive. It's also fascinating that he welcomes criticism and says he learns more from people critical of what he's doing than those who support it. He doesn't shy away from detractors and critics, just like he doesn't shy away from doing hard things. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. And please, if you're a loyal listener, leave us some stars or a review. You might think it's a small thing, but I really do love to hear what you think. Our producer, who also describes his days as like being on a roller coaster that's on fire with glass in the seat, is Joshua Christensen. Blake Odom is our production assistant and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Lagorio chafkin Thank you for listening to What I Know.